0: From the ESV. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Verse 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. I want to especially focus on verse 6, but the other verses that we've read are something that will be sort of a a framework, sort of a a kind of a a circle around what we are talking about. But I'd like to especially talk about verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. That is the normal way we grow fruitful. Okay? This is something that is laid down for us in nature as well. And what the Isaiah is saying is that there is a process of fruitfulness that is sort of three stages. Take root, put out shoots, blossom, put forth shoots and fill the earth with fruit. Yeah, there's these three stages, and I would like to talk a little bit about that today. But to frame it all, uh, it's maybe helpful for you to just think about the church as a vineyard, not as a public corporation or a private corporation or a business uh, or a club, but actually as a as a vineyard. And as you know, the Bible is filled with. Uh, images and metaphors of the vineyard, whereby the vineyard is there to produce wine. Right? The idea is the vineyard produces wine and the wine is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. The, vine- the church is a Holy Spirit producer. <laughs> it's a place where the Holy Spirit is able to grow in us. And the church is organically plugged into Jesus and to one another, in such a way that in this planting into Christ, Christ causes fruit to grow in the vineyard. Right? It's very interesting that this is one of the few times in the Old Testament where God speaks about the vineyard in a very positive way. Usually, He is complaining about Israel, about the vineyard that has actually been untrue to Him. To Him, it's been an unruly vine and all that. And there's a way in which what God is saying is this, He intends to keep it. He's calling it the pleasant vineyard, the vineyard that is strained, that is actually fruitful. And we are, want, we are going to talk about this uh, from time to time uh, as, we, as we continue to meet on Sundays. But I'd like to just draw your attention to that because what God is doing is to make not a set of programs, although programs can help. But really, essentially, what the Lord is wanting to do amongst us is to give fruit of the Holy Spirit. To produce fruit in the Holy Spirit. And the fruit can only come through being a vineyard. Not necessarily being as... Co- and not by, no, I would not don't use the word necessary. Not by being a corporation in the business sense of it. Does that make sense? And that makes all the difference. Because of the fact that When God actually uh, wants to produce fruit, His whole mode of operations upon us as a church, as well as us as individuals, is to prune us, to train us. When a vineyard is not trained, it's uh, um, it's not pruned, it becomes unruly. It may feel free, but the fruit becomes smaller and of lower quality. And so, when God actually begins to call us as a vine, a vineyard, He actually trains us, and I believe that that's what God is doing. Because the goal is to produce Holy Spirit stuff in us. Amen? To make us fill with the Holy Spirit. But there is something about the fruit of the Holy Spirit that God actually uh, uh, causes to grow, and it grows a certain way. And it says here, uh, in verse 6, In days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And I'd like to talk about how that actually happens uh, as we look in this. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. There's no way fruit can grow from a seed, no matter how beautiful the seed is, no matter how round the seed is, no matter how smooth the seed is, unless it takes root. True? True. I had this dream. I had this dream about a little seed. It was so happy that it had been liberated from the pod. It was so cramped in the pod, but it fell out of the pod and it fell onto the ground. It was happy as a lark. It rolled around on the ground rolling around here. He, was, he felt so free. And then he found out that he was surrounded by large, majestic, superior, fruitful trees. Large trees. And they were all looking down at him as he just rolled around, rolled around on the ground, you know, happy as a lark. Oh, wonderful. He rolled to one tree. And the tree said to him, You're going to be just like me. Wow. I'm going to be just like you. Yes, you're going to be just like me. You're the same kind of fruit as I am. One day, once upon a time, I was just like you, rolling around on the ground, just like me. He said, Wow. Another tree said, You're going to be just like me. And that tree was even taller and had more fruit on the tree. You're going to be just like me. And suddenly, the little seed that was rolling around the ground, just happy with itself, suddenly realized, I'm in really good company. I'm in really good company. Well, days, to years, and every day she rolled around, the trees would say, you're going to be just like me, full of fruit and all that. Little seed thought, when? When is that ever going to come? And the trees, of course, told him, you've got to get inside the ground. You can't roll around on the ground so much. doesn't matter how many nice trees are around there. As long as you're rolling on the ground, you're not inside the ground, you will never start your own journey. Correct? Right? It's, and some Christians are like that, rolling on the ground or like that. But anyway, let's get back to our story. Let's not, not get distracted by, by Christians. And he kept on rolling on the ground. And finally, after years of rolling on the ground, he was getting more and more wrinkled as possible. Before he was a very nice, smooth, uh, Botox-filled seed. Just nice, smooth, round, just happy as a lark. He began to realize that uh, this is not going anywhere. And after all those stories, he started not believing those stories anymore because no change was actually happening. But the, the, the taller trees who are by now bearing fruit were just kept, kept on saying, come on, come on, get into the ground. No, I don't want to get into the ground. I don't want to get back into the pod. I knew what the pod was like before. I was all cramped and all claustrophobic and all that. I don't want to go into the ground. Why do I get, should, should I go into the ground? And they say, you have to go to the ground or else you can't start. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. You are just biting alone. It's just like a little seed. You're just like a, you're, you're nothing. You're just like a little round thing just rolling and rolling and rolling. Many Christians are like that. Luckily, after years and years of rain and hail and sleet and hot, and hot sun and all that, it happened to be a rainy day. And one of the big trees got fed up of this little seed that was just rolling around, not bearing anything, and thinking that his whole identity was that of a seed. He he was fruiting. And I don't know whether you know what a jackfruit is. Is it big or small? big majestic tree decided, I'm going to throw a jackfruit on him. And so he threw a jackfruit, a huge jackfruit on him, and it fell on the seed, and the seed was flattened. But, because it was rainy, he was stuck in the mud. And guess what? He grew. He grew and bore much fruit. Okay, turn with me please to John chapter 12. And I'm sure you knew where I was going, because you're such a smart group of people. John chapter 12, we'll read this from verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, okay, were some Greeks. So they, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, in a very strange way, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, 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 I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, just rolling around on the ground. In good company, hearing the stories but never experiencing it himself or herself but if it dies it bears much fruit whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life if anyone serves me he must follow me and where i am there will my servant be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him And I'm going to turn a little bit more, uh, after a few more verses, let's go to verse um, verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, He departed, and He hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled lord who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed therefore they would could not believe for again isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and i would heal them wow it's clear, what Jesus is basically saying is this, in order for us to take root and become fruitful, you have to be a seed that falls into the ground and dies. Yeah? Many people remain as seeds. Tremendous potential. And I wonder whether you have ever felt that. When is this destiny, this sense of dream inside me, going to ever be fulfilled? God promises so much, and yet I still feel like I'm a scrawny seed that isn't anything much more than like a little pellet. Nothing more than a pellet. And some people, some Christians feel that way. They felt that there's been so much promise and they are among a lot, of things, a lot of people who have experienced great things from God and they've themselves not experienced it themselves. And so I want to talk about that because I believe that verse chapter 12 of John really gives us a real, real serious clue about how we can actually... Um, be fruitful um the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified these people wanted to see jesus They said, we want to see jesus yeah we want to see jesus and jesus begins to take what they are saying in a completely ten- almost tangential way and he says now is the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified you want to see me i want to show you my glory you can see me and see my miracles, and later on we saw that in, in verse, and still not believe. Yeah. You can see me and not be tra- transformed. But he says, but the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. It's just like just rolling over, over, over the ground. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, you are you're wanting to see me. I know many Christians, I myself was, was like that when I was younger. I wish I lived in Jesus' time so that I could see His miracles. It would be easy for me to believe. Jesus is saying, that, no. no. You, can't, you see all the miracles and yet you still believe. Something hasn't changed you. He's saying, when I am glorified and you see my glory, you will be changed. It's almost as if the real verb... <laughs> It's not you seeing me, but the miracles changing you. The miracles and the glory sees you. It actually acts upon you. And what Jesus is saying is this. I want you to have not just the observance of me, or being around tall trees that are fruitful, or hearing the stories, or being in a a supermarket of a church in which you can get great teaching. I am not about that actually i'm not even a model for you i'm not even an example i know i understand that there are many christians who think of jesus as a great example he is but that is the least of what he is what he came to do is to give life and life abundantly that the works that he would do we would do as well and you know that you have seen him you've seen his glory when the glory breaks the carapace of that hard shell of a seed inside you, and you actually end up doing what He did. That you see the miracles of God, and see the provision happening, see things come out of nothing, like, like Cindy was saying, even a small broken piece suddenly is filled with infinity. So that sometimes God can make you really, really small and humble you, but in that is full of eternity to such an extent that eternal and infinite things happen. New. What Jesus was saying is this: I don't want you to just see me. I want you to see my glory. For that to happen, I must die. But you must be a seed that falls into the ground and dies. Amen. So we are not interested in having a lot of good teaching, even though we may appreciate all that. We are not interested in being inspired. We want something to break. Because if that doesn't break from inside, you see how the seed breaks. It doesn't break from outside. It breaks from inside. That which is truly in there, which is infinite in there, breaks out. Breaks out, yeah? And so what, what, what Jesus is saying is this. It has to fall to the ground and die. And when that happens, something of that seed becomes not what it was before. That is what He has. Jesus is not our model he is in a small sense but that's the least of what he is we are not trying to be like jesus putting on hippie hippie garb and then following him like a like a like like a jesus the great revolutionary no that's not it. that's the least of him that's the least of him the fact that jesus did good and did um, um um, and, and was kind, and he was compassionate, and non-judgmental. That was, that was him. But it, is, it comes from a whole different spring. That is the least of him. Yeah? And so, what we see is actually Jesus saying, okay, you have to fall onto the ground and die. Let's have a look at this. Let's, let's have a look at this. If that is true, that he is not just a model or an example to emulate, and that He is something more than that, we have to ask, what is it that's powerful about what He's saying? What is it about His glory that is, that is for us? Jesus is a minister of a new covenant whereby. By, by, he would come on the inside of us. And when He comes on the inside of us, He will live His, his supernatural life through us. But he is so large, he's so great, he's so kingly, he's so loving that you will not be able to contain him. And because of that, you will burst, you will break if he's going to be the one in you and me. He will break the carapace or break the shell that is self protective. Now, we live in a society in which the direction of societal values has moved in the opposite direction. I've shared about you how with Rousseau and with Freud, Nietzsche and all that, we've moved towards a situation in which who I am in myself, my identity, is identified with my psychology, my feelings, my personality type and all that. And when people look at who they are, they think of who they are psychologically. Psychological man or psychological man or woman has become the center of who we are. And so, what happens is this: as as that begins to be more and more true, we begin to develop all kinds of ways to protect that self, to protect our personality, so to speak. And when we spend a lot of time protecting our personality, we begin to find a whole series of complexes by which we get offended if that self is not respected or honored or taken care of. And that's all wrong, you know. I, I believe that we should be respectful of one another. But there is a way in which that seed, as a Christian, if it is not broken, it will actually be self-contained. We will be self-contained within our own shell of self-protection. Does that mean society is going completely wrong? No. It just means that society intuits that there's something precious in there. But the preciousness doesn't doesn't consist in our personality. I am more than my personality. My daughter suddenly said something that blew my mind away. She says, my identity is not my personality. Suddenly I thought, oh wow, that is true. My Who I am is a covenant made with God. I can't give myself a name for myself. I'm too finite. I'm too broken. If I am identified with my brokenness and my good points and my gifts and all that, that is actually going to cause me to be actually highly sensitive, highly fragile, highly um, uh, hyper-vigilant over this and I will try to keep myself inviolate from there. But my life is no longer just the sum total of the atoms and chemistry and the, and the personality types and, the, and all the surveys that are done upon me. My life is a covenant made with God who's outside the system, outside the universe, who actually calls me and gives me a name and He causes things to happen. So I'm not just locked in as a seed into my personality. I'm not locked in as a seed to who, to the country that I came from or the race that I am in. I'm not locked into that. I am called in all my brokenness and one day I'll be even more broken than I am now. My back is going to get out. My shoulder is going to be... My skin is going to be wrinkled. There's My hair is leaving me already. There's, there's a way in which that which is of my personality will change. Do you know that? My gifts will go away. And if my identity lies in this, then God help me. But there is something that is actually growing in me, and that's my spirit that responds to one who has called me. And if he has called me, I can live a full and abundant life even if I'm in a coma, even if I'm paralyzed. If that's true. So there's a way in which society has begun to be move in the opposite direction of how God wants to release His glory. And that is we become more and more protective over ourselves. I won't say anything more about that. All to say, our identity is not wrapped up in our personality. Okay? It's not wrapped up in our feelings, not even our, not even our thoughts, not even in our body alone. Then what? What? Then what? (laughs) He begins to talk a little bit more about that. And he says in verse 24, Truly, truly I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Ah, those of you who are in Interbasti, you know this verse very well, right? Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for, for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's interesting, God says, it's worked out in serving. Now the word serving is uh, the word diakonot. Diakino- Diakaneo, right? Diakaneo. From where we get the word uh, deacon or diakonos, right? It is a serving that is of the most humble sort. It's actually serving tables like a waiter. So if we live according to uh, the seed falling to the ground, he says, if you want to serve me, right? Who, if, you want, if you love your life, you'll you have to lose it. And whoever hate, if you hate your life, will, you will keep it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's amazing. So what he's saying is this. You follow me just to serve me. Just to wait upon me. Yeah? To wait upon me. In such a way, amen, that we lose ourselves. That we lose ourselves. I like the fact that we worship God for quite a while. Worship is great. Worship puts us where we really are. If you worship God and I worship God in such a way that I lose myself in you in Him, then worship really helps me to die. Now a lot of times we come into worship and we don't realize what worship is because what we want to do with worship is to have a good experience. Why we do ministry? So that we can have a good experience. So that we can be fulfilled and we can use our gifts and our gifts can be developed. I'll put it to you that when God, when Jesus speaks about serving Him, He actually is talking about worship in a way that is the opposite of that. It's not self-fulfillment, but it's actually losing ourselves. Have you ever found when you are praying or you're worshipping, you feel the burden of yourself the heaviness of yourself beginning to roll away? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced that the importance of yourself and your problems and your, and your burdens after a while begin to disintegrate? And when that happens, you're not even aware of yourself. You're just aware of the goodness of God and, and how awesome He is. Has it ever happened to you? <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? There is a way in which when we worship, we can actually hold on to our own seed, so to speak, and try to worship. And I've seen people who come to worship, they're completely silent. Not because they are silent before the awesome power of God, but because of the fact that they are wrapped up into their own thoughts. They're trying to find out from from the center of self how this worship can help them. And so they're trying to sense the presence of God, but they're doing it in a way in which the self is right in the, in the middle and the self is wanting to be fed by God. And that's not wrong, but that becomes the center. And the burden of our own self and our feelings begins to be heavy. And so sometimes what happens is this. And sometimes it happens for some people accidentally. They worship the Lord, and at a certain point they said, what the heck, I'm just going to just sing. And when you sing, something takes over. As you begin to sing, you begin to forget about yourself. And as you begin to forget about yourself, you begin to be filled up with God. And the more and more you're filled up with God, you actually truly forget about yourself. And the, and, the, and the heavy burden of our own problems, our own self, and how we are feeling or whether we are getting anything out of the worship begins to go away. That is what it means by waiting upon God. And the word diakonial um, is that waiting upon God in such a way that God actually is the one that makes the first move. Okay. As we worship the Lord, as we praise the Lord, there happens, something happens there. As we throw ourselves before the Lord and we say, Lord, it's You that I'm going to be centering upon. It's You that I'm praising. What actually happens is this. Something of our incurvature pulls us back to ourselves. Pulls us back into ourselves. And then we praise Him again. And He pulls back into ourselves again and we begin to think, how is my praise? How is my being? And we are wondering how we're feeling. Am I doing it right? Is, this, is, is God's presence with me? But you don't know what you, know what, you just forget about it and just worship Him and just praise Him and you allow yourself to do that. As you do that waiting upon Him, He will lift you up. And you begin to find the heaviness, the density that's in your heart that's there, begins to, to, dis, to, 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 um, to disintegrate. And as it begins to disintegrate, you come to a place in which you are not even worried about yourself. What do you think about that? You're not even worried about yourself. Suddenly you're brought into the glory of God. And when the glory of God is there, you are filled with something stronger than yourself. Worship no longer becomes an instrument for feeling good. Ministry doesn't become an influence uh, an instrument for being fulfilled or fulfilling your calling or so to speak. It just becomes God. It just becomes God and God begins to fill, fill you and your seed actually is breaking up. The heaviness of that seed begins to break up and something comes out and that reality becomes a real thing to you. Serving him, what Jesus is saying, is this you, you can lose your life. Now that's the problem. See, the problem is this, our life and our concerns and our feelings and our hurts and all that have a way of sticking to us. So when Jesus is saying, you know, um, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me so that where I am, there my servant will be. What he's saying is this. You let it go. You just let it go. Will you feel good? Not necessarily at first. But you let it go. You just let it go. The feelings will come back. Because you will lose your life. I tend to think when he's saying lose your life, it's as if my life is like an albatross, like a big burden upon me. I have to lose it. Because my life contains of much brokenness, much bad, 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 bad experiences and bad memories, many hurts, many regrets, many shame things, shame, shameful things. I have that. When Jesus is saying, you lose your life, He's not saying, you do therapy by worshipping. He's saying, just let it go. Let it go, because I will cause you to lose your life. I will lose your life. And I will cause you to lose your life. And you will not be worried about what will happen to it. You will not be worried. to have, There is something of a forgetfulness of self that we, we are being brought into by just worshipping Him, not for our sake, not for therapy's sake, not for how we can feel good, good about our worship, but because of Him. For no advantage at all. If you worship or work, minister or think for any advantage, you will not enter into the dimension of glory. You will get something out of it, but you will still be contained within the seediness of yourself. Does that make sense? There is a way in which God can lift us out of it and liberate us, and it doesn't come when our feelings are just right it comes when we just obey him and we lose that motivation (laughs) it works you know it works because we're going to find that the spirit the spiritual things the things that are of deep supernatural significance come not from culling our feelings or pulling our feelings and, and, and bringing our feelings to a certain level. It doesn't come that way. It has to be cut so that through obedience, we make that jump into God's arms. And more often than not, we don't feel anything for that. So when Jesus is saying to serve me, He's saying You serve me for myself. Not for what advantage you can get. If you live in your psychological self, you will not be able to escape it. You'll be trapped within the seed. That is what God meant in the Old Testament and what Jesus meant when He says, their hearts are hardened. You're encased in that self-protectiveness. It is natural. It is quite normal for us to do that. We, we do it all the time. Because we have been broken, we've been hurt, we are insecure. But there is a way in which Jesus is saying, that broke that, that conundrum, right? This conundrum can be broken, and you take your first step. you say, "I want to worship you. I'm going to praise you for who you are, for no advantages." Afterwards, when I finish sharing, we're going to do that. Is that okay? We'll do that for a little bit. And we'll, we'll sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Okay, get ready for that. But we are not going to worship so that we're going to feel good. We just do it for five or ten minutes. Not for anything that's advantage, but just just throw it all to him how's that how's that let your seed fall to the ground whatever happens to it if somebody steps on it don't worry about it just let it fall to the ground and god will receive it okay i think we can do it i actually think we can do it we can actually worship god not for any advantage for any therapeutic thing it is but We throw it to Him so that it's in the realm of God to do whatever He wants to do. And if, perchance, He does something when we worship within that 5 or 10 minutes, you will know it wasn't you. It wasn't you who, who manipulated it. It was God. Amen? Okay, I have to watch the time. And so what the Bible says is, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what a taste is? A taste is an actual connection with a thing. It's not thought. It's not reading about it. Tasting it is actually partaking of a small piece of it. And what God wants is for us to taste so that you can never untaste it. He wants you and me to experience His voice, his, his, a revelation of Him that may not be totally profound, but it is something that, will, that you will have had contact with because that thing actually touched you. Okay? When I was a kid, we never had pizza in Malaysia. We only w- watched... TV programs in which people will show people will be eating pizza. I had never eaten pizza till 1988 when I came to Fuller to study. And there's nothing I could do because there was an infinite gap between my watching TV, other people watching, eating their pizza, and me. I, couldn't, I could not bridge that gap it was infinite. And then when I came to Fuller, the first thing that this, this friends of mine did was to, me to a, take me to a pizza parlor. And I saw what those red things were. They were actually meat. Pepperoni, right? And when I tasted it, I could never untaste it. Because I partook of something And I was never the same again after that. And I've been eating pizza since then. It's not good. Pepperoni is not good for me. I don't eat pepperoni. But there's all kinds of others. But there's a taste. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, hearing the voice of God is the same. And... If you wait for yourself to feel good about hearing the voice of God, and that, and that the voice of God is something that you can trap yourself by feeling your way into it by sentimentality, it's not going to happen. You're going to just have to take whatever impression you receive and test it out. Amen. So I, I sometimes come to situations in which all this hearing from God that's hypothetical and theoretical is tested. And I shared this story for us, and some of you have heard this. A few years ago, I was invited to speak in Australia, and I've been to Australia, I think, three times already to minister in Perth. And, and uh, the first time I went to Australia, we went to the airport. My brother was there, my mom was there to take me from Kuala Lumpur to, to, to the airport. Well, to the, to the airport, because the flight was from Kuala Lumpur to Perth. I've never been to Australia and I was so used to not having a visa, that when I came to, to get my ticket, my, my boarding pass, I saw that the person in front of me was asked by the one at the counter, can uh, show me your visa? 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 What visa? And it was late, and I did not have a visa. I never even thought about having a Visa? And I said to my brother, I don't have a visa. He told me, maybe you can get a quick one, a one-hour online visa. I said, let's do it. He just happened to bring his, his laptop. So I got out of the line and quickly got onto the internet for the Australian embassy and said, let's try to get that one-hour one visa. And just as I found the website, a notice came out the website is down for the whole day. So I couldn't get a visa. And I had to think, okay, what, what's happened? So I think my brother was, was telling me, you know, if you, if you don't have a visa and you make it to Australia, you could get into serious trouble. I think it's one night in jail for something and then, and then they release you. So I had to then then decide, am I going to go forward with this or not? Thankfully, if I, they stop me from even getting through the gate, I'll be out of trouble at least. But it had been so much preparation for so many churches that have been organizing this, I, can't, I couldn't even think about all that. And so I felt the taste of a voice and said, go forward, just go forward. You know the verse in, uh, in, uh, in Exodus when Moses was crying out to the Lord and the Lord says, why are you calling out to me? Tell the people, go forward. I felt that at first. I had to know whether that was the voice of God or not. And the stakes were a little high at that time. And so I found that I had to test it out or taste it out and I felt something tell me, you'll never know until you try it out. So I went back in line. Went to the, to the, to the counter. They gave me the boarding pass and said, okay, Mr. Koh, you can go now. And there I had the boarding pass. Yay! And then I had to go through the gate. I went through the gate and nobody stopped me. And then suddenly panic came upon me. But what will happen when you go to Australia? And so for those few hours, I was like wrestling with it. Did I hear or did I not hear? Is God, what if I didn't hear? Will God have mercy upon me? I understood something. That is that even if I made a mistake, God can be trusted. He'll take care of me. Amen? The stakes are not as high as I thought it was. And so I went... Finally, after several hours, which which felt like an eternity, there I was in Perth, Australia. Lots of people in the in the crowd, and they were coming up to the coming up to the to the counter. And uh, I saw the immigration officer literally scold somebody because their their passport was not arranged properly, but she had a visa. She had a visa. And <laughs> my first impression of Australians is not, not, not that positive because they were scolding everybody. <laughs> scolding everybody. But there was one really nice guy who was quite pleasant. So I prayed that I would get that nice guy. And when I came to the front, I got the bad guy. <laughs> and I had to taste and see. Okay. And I was monitoring how the voice of God felt, as that supposed voice of God, right? That theoretical, hypothetically voice, voice of God. And I just felt an assurance. Felt jittery, and I felt assurance there. And I decided I'm going to choose assurance. I went forward, he opened my passport, and he said, Welcome to Australia. And I'll just walk quietly as if nothing happens. Taste and see. And so may I suggest to you that actually God wants us in that tasting. It's like a death. But you have to. Because that will determine the quality of your familiarity with the voice of God. Okay, I want to say some, something more. In doing that, Several times we begin to get feel, and we learn to be intimate with God by stepping out and stepping out and stepping out and stepping out. God is speaking to you about giving you giving a word of knowledge, perhaps to somebody who's perhaps a non-Christian, and you don't know you don't know whether you can move into that realm unless unless you try it out. And it seems like a risk, but I want to invite you to take that risk. Because that is the only way you know a person, by taking a risk. It's the only way we know God, by taking that risk. Amen? And so, intimacy with God doesn't come because of feelings, but because of risks that we take, so to speak. Steps that we take in good faith towards God steps of good faith by which we say, I think you said that. I'm going to try it. And then, through that, the voice of God begins to be more and more familiar. Does that make sense? I think we have a a mistaken view of intimacy. We say our vows to one another and most of it is sentiment. I would say that Intimacy with God is something that is real. It's decision-based. And it doesn't necessarily feel good. I do encourage you to, when you say your vows to one another, if you ever get get married, talk about the, 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 the clouds in the sky. Talk about the wind blowing in her hair. Talk about all that, how you were struck by, how beautiful she was that you could not even move your right leg or your left leg forward. Talk about all that. Talk about how she's better than any, anything you've ever seen. And, and he as well. It may be difficult, but at the end of the day, you have to decide you're going to commit yourself to that person. Does that make sense? Thank God for Chat GPT, right? It he can help you to make your vows to one another. But may I suggest to you that actually, at the end of the day, it's decisions that we make. Now, here's the thing. Decisions that we make over, over a lifetime with one another, even when we are married to other, come to a place in which when all the romance and the sentimental sentimentality begins to evaporate and thus goes away, what we have is actual deep dimensions of love when the advantage of being married is replaced by just pain, 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 God brings us into a new level in our relationship with one another and with with Him as well. What say you? Yeah? And when that happens, you actually break into a whole new realm, not of advantage, not of what that person can do for you, but what There is. What there is there. And what there is there is not dependent on the advantage or the nice feelings or the sentiment or the romance of what it is to be married. Yeah? Marriage to God takes us into a realm that is beyond the realm of our advantage. That's how you see the glory of God. We all come to Jesus because He has something really great for us. But in order for us to actually be fruitful, the seed must die. But there is another realm beyond the advantage of the abundant life. There is something that is deeper. And that deeper thing will keep you there in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer. If not... You will only be within the realm of what the Greeks were hoping, just to see Jesus face to face, but not His glory. The glory only comes when you've come to a point where there's just death. And when that happens, you don't even know why you are in it. You do not know why you're still a Christian, because it's so difficult. But you know that there must be something more than just the advantage. Okay? In 532, Justinian emperor, emperor of the Byzantine Empire was at, a, at the, what you call the hippodrome where the, the blues and the greens were combating one another in the chariot races. But something had been brewing in the country for a long long time, in the empire for a long time, and the country was ready for rebellion. There was much mismanagement that had taken place, and they wanted to get rid of him, wanted to kill him. And so, at that chariot race, where sport was taken to a whole other level of murderous uh, intensity, The whole Hippodrome erupted and overwhelmed the palace guard with rebellion. Justinian and his wife, the Empress Theodora, escaped and they were about to leave um, uh, Constantinople because a a boat was there ready for them and his his general, uh, Belisarius, right? was there to actually take them. And Theodora, his wife, who had been formerly an entertainer of not great reputation, but who had become a Christian and, and had married him, stops everybody. Can you imagine thousands of people coming and descending upon them? And says to that party of Justinian, my lords, the present occasion is too serious to allow me to follow the convention that a woman should not speak in a man's council. Those whose interests are threatened by extreme danger should think only of the wisest course of action and not of conventions. In my opinion, flight is not the right cause, even if it should bring us to safety. It is impossible for a person, having been born into this world, not to die. But for one who has reigned, it is intolerable to be a fugitive. If you wish to save yourself, and this is the famous part of the speech, if you wish to save yourself, my Lord, there is no difficulty. We are rich. Over there is the sea, and yonder are the ships. Yet reflect for a moment whether when you have once escaped to a place of security, you would not gladly exchange such safety for death. As for me, I agree with the adage that the royal purple, which is the, 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 the color of royalty, is the noblest shroud. And there and then, Justinian turned back and faced the thousands who were wanting to kill him. She was not offering him an advantage. She was offering him who he was. He was just offering God's call, his identity. An identity that could kill him. But she stood up to the crowd and stood up to him. Justinian became the most famous and most well-accomplished Byzantine emperor that we know of. The Hagia Sophia was built by him. He was the one who developed the law code that became the foundation for many other modern law codes before, after that. Before it was Hammurabi. But Justinian's law code is the one. It was based upon Christian principles. And it was this that called him out. And he was about to enter into a whole realm of ruling that he had never experienced before because he had ahead of him nothing but death to contend with that awaited him. And his wife, Theodora, excellent woman, inspired him and called out not advantage, not strategy, but value. Isn't that amazing? After that, 532, Justinian's reign was glorious because he became a different person. He saw something more. He saw the deliverance of God. She was a, a circus performer who was considered as immoral before she, she, she was his, his wife. But she's the one who participated in Justinian's legal and spiritual reforms. She was the one who promulgated, promulgated laws prohibiting forced prostitution closed, and she closed brothels. And she, invent, she, she started a convent called Metanoia, which means repentance for ex-prostitutes. I want to put it to you that God is taking us to a realm beyond advantage. The seed must die. And in that, God is actually calling us to be fruitful. Let us pray. If you have children, thank you for great getting them. Let's worship the Lord right now. For those of us who are here, feel free to stay for as long as you like. But we will open ourselves to the Lord and respond to Him as uh, worshippers. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. Let's all stand to our feet. Bless your name. Let's open ourselves to the Lord. The most important one who's here is not us, but Him. And when we set our heart towards Him, Trust Him that He will speak to us. He knows our need. He knows every burden that we have. Bless your name, Lord. Let's worship Him give him all I love you Lord every need that's here I believe God by His Spirit can drop in our hearts words words of knowledge prophecies a
1: hymn
0: a song a scripture let's be open to the Holy Spirit it may be just a particle that you get take a step forward is being tied to Him. At a nudge, we obey Him. And that is what it means by waiting. Like a waiter. It is eye, her eye, upon the Lord. It's a humbling thing, because of the fact that we have to be humble enough that's how we taste Test the voice of God bless your name Lord we worship you Lord thank you Lord that you love infinitely Lord thank you that your love is here I want to hear from God. I want God to open my eyes. Open my eyes so I can see His glory. If you feel that way, just feel free to come forward and receive prayer. someone was healed of a knee pain injury, if you have a knee injury or a problem there, feel free to receive prayer as well, because I do believe that the Lord is healing in that way as well. any kind of sickness, any kind of injury or any kind of ailment, feel free to receive prayer. Anyone who has a word, feel free to share. Lives to you, and know that they are
1: in safe hands. We bless you, and we.